Welcome to Old Town New World. We're here in downtown Rock Hill at Millstone Pizza. And uh, my name is Jason Broadwater, and we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. While listening to Rush's awesome uh, song, Tom Sawyer, we are also meeting with Matt and Caroline. Matt and Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Hello. All right, great. We also have with us Josiah. Hey. And David. Hello, listeners. <laughs> and behind the mic, Silent Micah. Well said, Micah, well said. <laughs> and um, we are going to today learn about Matt and Caroline. So you guys, if I'm not mistaken, you guys live here in Rock Hill? We do. Correct. We both Just moved here for college. A couple blocks away from right here. Okay, wow. So you moved here for Winthrop. Yes, correct. Yeah. I'm from Charlotte, and Matt's from Lexington, South Carolina. So why Winthrop? Um, it's it's the best art school in South Carolina, and I had a state scholarship. I got into a couple of places out of state that were better, but um, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford the student loans. Or I didn't think it was wise to get into so much debt. You know, the government's always pretty quick to, to shell out however much of a, of a loan you need, but... I thought it would be unwise since I was going for an art degree. You know, I think that's interesting, man. I, you know, I um, used to always think, I think my generation was taught, it doesn't, as long as it's for education, it doesn't matter how much you spend or how much you borrow. And that is just so not true, man. You know, I mean, you can go so far into debt borrowing money for education and, and kind of for what? I mean. Did you see the story of the kid that got into all the Ivy League schools? No. This kid in Texas got into every single Ivy League school didn't accept any of them because they were too expensive and ended up going to Alabama because they gave them a full ride. Wow, that's awesome. It's really telling, though, about our student debt problem. Oh, it's really telling. I mean, I, you know, I just now, I'm 39 years old, I just now paid off my master's oh, my program on the student loans for my master's program. And I have a master's in creative writing. And so, like... Well, I, you really shot yourself in the foot with that one. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. You're very... Uh, Print is dead after all. <laughs> well, I write on the interweb, too. But, um... Um, but I write in like noises, but um, but you know it's just telling like it's not necessarily okay to go completely upside down in debt over education because what mechanism does it provide you to pay that money back? I mean, where does it leave you? You know, and well, especially in today's marketplace, as far as jobs and even debt, debt itself is being bought and sold. You know, it's such a precarious situation that we're in at the 21st century. It is. Our generation is facing debt in college and in the workplace too in a way that's totally different from past generations. But I think that's been said a thousand times. So It is different, man. A thousand and one, let's make it. It is different. Um, and I think that actually, you know, the millennial generation coming of age during the what we call the Great Recession has actually made such an impact on the generation to not be like, because my generation, man, you know, I'm one generation of, I'm the Gen Xer or whatever, you know, it's like, it doesn't, debt doesn't matter. You need as much debt as you can get. You're not an adult until you are up your eyeballs in debt. Like, that was the, what we were taught, you know? And just borrow more, borrow more, buy a bigger house, get more education, whatever you need, because, you know, it'll all come back. Your real estate will appreciate, your education will pay off. Don't worry about it. It's a very foreign idea to me. Yeah. It's from the way I was raised, too. Because well, be. I, I have brothers, I have, I have a lot of siblings, and a few of them are in your generation. And um, I think that they were raised with that, like we had the same parents, but they were raised like that and I was raised totally differently because the world changed in, yeah. in 10 or 20 years. It sure did, man, in a big way. So 
So let's go back to, okay, so you came to Rock Hill because of Winthrop. Y'all, did y'all meet here in Rock Hill? Yeah, we did. We met at Winthrop. Our very first class together. <laughs> it's kind of stupid. What class? We met in our first class together. Drawing, drawing one. Drawing 101, I guess you would say. How many times can you draw 101 before you get tired of doing you would, it? You, you would be surprised. <laughs> How many times can you draw like a horse skull and like a, you know. An apple. A bowling pin and an orange. Uh, yeah. An apple, sure. Yeah. Very cool. So. So you both have pursued the arts throughout. I mean, you, uh, Caroline, you are a jewelry designer, among other things. Yes, yeah, so I actually came to Winthrop wanting to do drawing, but I found out about the jewelry program once I got here, and I just thought it was a really neat opportunity to learn a new skill and fell in love with it. That's they have a really great jewelry program. Good. The school's really trying to put forward the idea of uh, 3D printing, too. We have the first personal 3D printer available, which is from the Rock Hill Company here. I forget the name. 3D Systems. 3D Systems, yes. Yeah. They put out the cube. Yeah. Winthrop actually got a cube for us so we could do 3D printing in the studio, Very which is cool. phenomenal. 3D printing is pretty insane. It's, in, it's so important. I mean, if you're a jewelry designer now, you have to know the CAD. There's no is separating it, the two. Is it like, so do you prototype and then you actually use the materials? Too, if you want to uh, mass produce an object, right. obviously it's nice to have original pieces that you hand make that are just one of a kind, but a lot of times jewelry companies, they make a design and then they mass produce it through CAD. Oh, wow. And that's how they're able to do that. And these technologies are all relatively new. I mean. Yeah, they are, definitely. Yeah. But it's helping a lot with production and accessibility too. If anybody out there is listening who has like a DIY, Kind of ethic, you can make a 3D printer of your own out of two disk drives from like an old computer. You can look it up on Instructables. Wow. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. yeah, very cool. So, Matt, you are still in the arts. You are a curator at a museum, is that? Yes, that's right. I'm the uh, curator of collections and the uh, community development coordinator at Spartanburg Art Museum in Spartanburg, South Carolina. So, wait, say that title again, I'm sorry. Curator of collections. Okay and Community Development Coordinator at Spartanburg Art Museum in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The curator of Collections is where you actually uh, decide what comes into a collection and how it's displayed and all that kind of stuff. I do. I decide all those things, but that's just a really small part of what I do okay. as far as curating the collection goes, because we already have an existing collection of over 1,400 works wow. from as far back as like uh, the early 1700s. Wow and I decide what's gonna to happen to those pieces and I safeguard them chemically, physically, and biologically for the future. So, you know, taking an object that was, you know, made by human hands in our day-to-day -day lives and making it last for 500 to 1,000 years, yeah. which is the kind of time scale we think on, think of in collections management, is yeah. a pretty difficult task and it takes a lot of meticulous analysis and planning. Very cool. I mean, you know, it's it, the the preservation of things is at the core of kind of the way we pass on culture. It is, yeah. It's kind of it's at the core of why museums uh, came about as a, any kind of entity yeah. within culture. Yeah. You know, a museum is a repository of culture that safeguards it for future generations to reinterpret and to re-examine what happened in the past to understand their place in the present. So, so. Do you feel under pressure, like every uh, institution, like let's say like a library for example, do you feel under great pressure to um, uh, kind of shout out how relevant you are? <laughs> um, 
That's a pretty complicated question. There's a huge trend going on that started like in the early 2000s and which is just reaching its crescendo in this sec, you know, the present day that really big museums have started and which has spread to small museums like ours of like trying to become relevant on just like a cultural, like an event basis, you know, like yeah. a, that people have like many, many points of contact with art and with culture through a museum. Like a museum is like a desirable place to go to like have fun and have a good time, which is an idea that didn't really exist before like the early 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah. It used to be that a museum was just like a quiet place for meditation and like... Well, library is the same thing. I mean, you know, but so help me, uh, you know, connect these things in my mind because uh, a, 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 an idea that I've come to recently that has given me great, uh, I don't know, kind of a release on uh, worry over the library is... Um, you know, the library has always been a place of access, and it's it's the great leveler because the people who have uh, wealth always have access, and the people who don't don't have access. And the library was always a great leveler of that. When you're talking about access to books, yeah. knowledge, information, there's so many stories of people, you know, poor kids that were able to change the world because they were able to go to the library and read. Um, well, I've always wondered what, what what's the role of the library in the new economy, the new world, and all this, because you know the digital revolution, all this stuff. But like. Library to me is still going to be a place of access. So, so as we look at building libraries, we should look at creating maker spaces and 3D labs and uh, access to the internet and uh, access to all types of crazy digital tools and stuff. Because still, it's access to be entrepreneurial, creative, and and kind of uh, you know provide value in some way. But it's still it's still a, the great leveler of access. So, so you know, let's talk out think out loud about what the museum is, what it has been, and what it. What will be constant about it as we go into the future, even though it might look different? You know, what, what's at the core of what a museum is? Um, well, to tell the story of museums, we have to go back to the beginning of time. Just kidding. <laughs> a lot of people think that way about the museum, though. They think they see a museum as an institution that's been around forever. But the museum as we know it didn't really come about. You know, the museum as this independent uh, voice within culture that collected objects and artifacts which represented the culture of the present into the future. That didn't come about until the 1800s. And the way that museums, Western museums, which is all museums, or the Western museum ethic like is... Like <laughs> <No, sorry. laughs> Like in... Thank you. In the European tradition and in the American tradition, which is the way that a lot of museums are operating now on the world stage, New kind of museums are starting to come about in developing countries, and I think that's awesome. And they're approaching things from a different direction. I think that's going to be great. But right now, all the biggest museums in the world, they come from this European tradition. And those museums originated like in the 15 or 1600s um, in the medieval era. Uh, and they grew out of this kind of German concept, which was called, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but it's something like Wunderkammer, um, which is like the cabinet of curiosities, the collection of like interesting objects. Yeah. So somebody like who was schooled in these kind of like, I don't know, uh, I, there's something really arcane and alchemical about it if you go back, back that far in history. But there's like people within culture who would collect things like seashells, um, skeletons and samples of plant and animal life from foreign lands, as well as art and interesting rocks and uh, substances, foreign substances, which they thought, you know, were held some kind of magical property, you know, like 
chromium and cerulean and you yeah. know stuff it like sounds, that. It sounds like a similar concept to like the circus. You know how when the circus comes to town, you know you, you see elephants and giraffes like something you wouldn't normally see, and that I mean same is true with zoos. But the, the, I mean the circus as a concept is. Uh, exposure to things you wouldn't normally see. Right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting to think that a museum started as a circus, like in, in the, the same There's light. definitely some similarities, I think, if you go far back in time. But the thing is, the uh, the translation of that is curiosity cabinet. Very cool. Uh, it's wonderfully alliterative to be a translation. Yeah, it is indeed. It's, yeah. it's a wonder cabinet, but curiosity cabinet is. Oh, I see that you amended the translation yeah, so to achieve alliteration. I see what you're doing here. <laughs> if we're using well, that, if we're using that circus metaphor, you know, think to circuses from the 1800s. They had that whole kind of, um, you know, I don't know what's it called now. What's that place in Myrtle Beach that people go to to see weird Ripley's? things? Ripley's, believe it or not, or Walmart. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of it's kind of like that, you know. It's it's like all these strange kind of challenging visual things because it's very right. visual, right? Right. That you want to come take a look at. It's like medieval torture devices right. and a two-headed, you know, fish and you know. But then also a really in, big dog. In the yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even even <laughs> mundane things would have been included in the Wunderkammer in the 15 and 1600s. You know, you could have had a shiny rock and but you would have also had art in there, and you would have also had historical documents. Like if you had come across some sword or a document or like a sculpture or something that dated back a few hundred years before the time you were living in, yeah. you could have added it to your Wunderkammer with a great degree of, you know, pride, pride in yourself, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so people started to amass these collections of objects. And through these collections of objects that they collected just for aesthetic or scholarly value, they started to think about what culture was and what it could be and, you know, they started to actually develop a dialogue with culture. Yeah, that's how that conversation opened. And then over time, let's fast forward like 100 or 200 years, collections like these and the tradition of collecting things like these have, have grown so much that they're enormous, they're gigantic, and they're clustered around all the centers of culture yeah. of all of these countries and cities. Yeah. And even today, you know, we still have museums and major cultural centers clustering around centers of population. So You know, what's interesting, if I may interject here, it's interesting... Um, that as long as the public sector decides to invest in uh, kind of uh, that which propels culture, which the cradle of culture passes on culture, explores culture, like the humanities kind of stuff, as long as the public sector decides to invest in that, things like this can exist. Um, you know, our, our um, fiscal conservatism sometimes uh, always puts forward the question, how is this going to pay for itself? And so you put forward a uh, kind of a capitalist proposition. You know, I, I um, have built a company from sitting in a third bedroom in my house by myself, you know, and so I know what capitalism means. I know creating something that the market will bear, creating value that will support itself. I mean, I have to make payroll every two weeks. I mean, I have to, I'm very close to the dollar in everything I do. But, I think it's a it's so misguided to put those institutions that are the cradle of uh, carrying forward kind of civilization and and bigger thinking to those same uh, standards of uh, I mean because if you make a museum pay for itself it's going to turn into a freaking nightclub that's exactly right and that's what's happening with a lot of really big museums 
you know, around the world. Yeah. All the programming and all of the curatorial energy, all the scholarship, all of that stuff is being diverted. All of those resources are being diverted into engaging people in, you know, a as entertainment. Yeah. And there's a lot of entertainment in our culture already. And I think that art is entertaining and having a dialogue with your history and learning about something um, which, you know, goes back into, I mean, that can be entertaining, yeah. you know. And but the, well, it's, the it's not the same words, as like a movie yeah. theater. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those words are interesting, like entertainment versus learning versus engagement. Like, you know, when I'm learning, I'm engaged and I could not be more entertained, you know, but I think we tend to make the word entertainment mean more like kind of the bubblegum version. Like, you know, like I love the movie Avengers. I think it's entertaining, you know, but I would much rather be like, uh, my son and I fell asleep last night watching an episode of Cosmos. And I had more fun watching Cosmos than the Avengers, and I, because I was, it was blowing my mind at every stage about what I was learning about the world. You know, that's a whole nother layer, and and you know the Avengers can make billions of dollars, you know, but a museum can't. You know, it's a, it's interesting kind of, uh, it's a, it's a tough challenge. You know? It's kind of like the Picasso piece that just sold famously. I think it was like 179 million or something like that. Right? Oh, I bought it. Yeah, I've got it. You want to see it? <laughs> yeah. That's more than the operating budget of, like, it's astronomically more than the operating budget of the top five biggest museums in the United States combined. Right. Astronomical. It's, in, it's insane. It's you know? one painting. It's because it captivated the imagination of the capitalist marketplace. That's why it sold for that. Well, Picasso, among the super wealthy, which have been growing in the last, like, ten years, yeah. has become kind of a luxury brand, a lot like Bugatti or, you know, something like that. Exactly. Manny Pacquiao, we learned the other day when he fought uh, uh, that, that fight recently, has Mayweather. what? Mayweather has what? Five, six Bugattis or something? You know, I mean, so like, you know, that's just an incredible amount of excess. But, you know, he, he's got five Bugattis, but we're all still driving a car, and a lot of us probably really enjoy driving, you know? Oh, I'd love to have a Bugatti. So I'm not hating on him. I mean, I'd love to have one. Yeah. But my point is, it's just that amount of excess around, like, what is the popular uh, item that represents kind of, I mean, Bugatti represents beauty of design and engineering and all that stuff, so I'm not downing, I think it's freaking amazing, I'd love to have one. I'd love to have Picasso too, but I mean, it's just an excess, you know. But there's but there's, there's so many other cars that you can enjoy. I mean, yeah, Bugatti's lovely, but most of us are never gonna own one, and but we're still, a lot of us are gonna have a car and we're gonna enjoy driving it. And we may maybe wanna think or something, we're gonna take our car out for a drive or we're gonna you know, drive down a country road in the spring and it's gonna be a beautiful moment, we're gonna remember it. Well, but it might be a Pontiac Gadolina, you know, it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? And you know, it's, just, it's like that in art too. You know, the Picasso is like the name brand that somebody's paying $179 million for, but there is an exponentially more artists, less like well-known and less visible artists who make beautiful work that people can encounter and have a relationship with in smaller museums. There's 35,000 museums in the United States. That's more than the number of Starbucks and McDonald's there are combined in the United States. So if there's that many museums, let me ask you a challenging question if I may. Um, I mean, is there some fat that needs to be trimmed from a public sector standpoint? Um, well, you know, when you go to McDonald's, you get the same burger every time. You know? if, I go to, if I go to McDonald's in Tokyo and I go to McDonald's in you know, Rock Hill right here, and I order a double cheeseburger, it's gonna taste the same way, right? But if I go to a museum in Tokyo, and I go to a museum in Rock Hill, I'm gonna see something, two, two collections of artifacts that are so different and tell such a different story about humanity, which is very complex, 
and it goes back a really long time that uh, I mean who, who of us like wouldn't want to see like what kind of crazy stuff they have in the museum in Tokyo right you know yeah. what is and why why do we why do we have that reaction why do we want to see those things it's because they give us this opportunity to connect with this really huge huge amount of historical time and space and it's it's not a way of connecting with it that makes us feel small and insignificant like when, when I think about you know, the Picasso that sold for 179 million dollars I don't think like oh yeah that's you know I can rub shoulders with that guy right. you know no I'm never gonna meet that guy and he lives in a totally different world and so does that Picasso I'm it's probably gonna be in a private collection and I'm never gonna see it and that represents that part of culture that we can never really connect with and that's you know, that can be described as exclusive or elitist or whatever. It's, it just describes a part of culture that is separate and is part of this kind of canonical narrative that we can't connect with. But there's so much more out there that, you know, we can have a relationship with and it can enrich our lives. So let me yeah. ask you this. I, I mean, how, you know, like Instagram or, you know, like, you know, a lot of people just take photos for fun with film or, you know, so Polaroids or whatever. is the internet becoming a museum? Well, I don't know, because the internet isn't curated in any kind of way. So that's what defines a museum? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The difference between the Wunderkammer that I talked about in the Middle Ages and a museum is that the Wunderkammer, everything is given equal value and it's all displayed next to each other. It's a lot like the internet, you know. Everything's there. There's no order. Um, it's just all displayed on an equal, you know, space uh, aside from like SEOs you know which we won't get into but um, you know it, it's like when you go to a museum somebody who spends a whole lot of time researching like what is gonna give you the most like bang for your buck right even though you don't have to pay when you come to our museum because we're a nonprofit funded entirely by grants and donations um, when you come to a museum it's like your time is better spent because you get to see objects that we've spent all this time sifting through all of the millions of things that are created every day in culture to find something that is going to be useful to you as from you know from an emotional or a mental or a physical so it's standpoint like a, a hip-hop record how do you mean like it's sampling from past stuff based on the artist's decision on what to sample and how to rank it that's that's a really good metaphor, actually. It is like a hip-hop metaphor. We sample something from the past. In the act of curating, though, we make it into something else. But what it was originally isn't lost, you know? When you hear a sample of a song you really like in a hip-hop song, you know, it's not like you think about that song when you listen to it, but you also appreciate the sound or the sample or whatever in a new way because it's being shown to you in a new way. It's like it enriches both your present experience and your memories. And the more experiences you have to draw on in the past and the present, then the more you're going to be able to enjoy and experience. And it's just going to, you're going to have a richer life, you know what I mean? So let me ask this. Let me transition back to Caroline, if I may, Caroline. Um, so here Matt is um, curating all kinds of art and cultural uh, input, human input into the cultural experience from the past. To create a present experience and here you are um, just creating present experiences based on uh, creating art that people can wear and enjoy and you know so to some extent it's entertainment to some extent it's art to some extent it's, do you identify with the kind of um, timeline of museums and stuff in your work or do you just kind of create pretty things I appreciate what Matt does immensely 
Uh, my focus in art has always been more on how can I make someone connect with something and feel something in their moment? How can I give someone something that they can reflect on and like trigger some experience or feeling? It's more about the reflection of a personal being than this greater, larger than life recollection of humanity, like what Matt's doing. So I think he's doing the large scale contribution to art and I'm doing the more small scale personal contribution where jewelry is very personal. It is. When you put it on it is a personal thing. You pick a necklace, it's from someone that's really personal to you. It means something personal to you. So I'm doing the very small scale contribution of art. But you know what's funny is that's social history. So like, you know, as Matt is curating a a, a kind of a collection about today's social history he may include jewelry created yeah, today for my pieces will be in the collection in the but they yeah, need exactly. to be experienced first yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be a part of the collection so it needs to be real for <laughs> present first and then it becomes it will someday be remembered as having a memory yeah but i'm trying to make those memories and give people something that they can connect with very cool i feel like a lot of what we do at a museum is we a lot of people they just walk in and see a piece of jewelry they're not going to understand that it is something that they can immediately connect with and understand and it's like we provide that in that interpretive ground for them to encounter it with you know yeah. it's like we say like this you know this jewelry is created by a specific person in a specific time that relates to you how and it, you know, we just kind of make it more because I, I used to teach I taught ninth grade English for four years yeah me too oh really what what grade, grade no. for four years <laughs> I taught I taught um uh, kids with learning disabilities. I did intensive therapy at like a speech pathology clinic That's before awesome. I worked at a museum. Very cool. So, so when I was teaching uh, ninth grade English, I used to teach uh, my favorite a couple of my favorite things to teach were the Odyssey, Romeo and Juliet, and the Old Man of the Sea. Why? Well, in each, really, it was just because I was so passionate about each of those. And when we did the Odyssey, I, I used to make them watch the entire Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy. But um. But I was so passionate about those three stories, um, and I was able to get them to love those stories. And it's because I was connecting it to, I mean, it's the way the synapse works, if you're gonna be biological or chemical or whatever. I was connecting it to things that they understand as being real. I was the curator. I was, if they just encountered that book by themselves, they, it seemed so foreign, they couldn't even start it, like Old Man of the Sea. It's not some old man. Yeah, appreciate it. I, yeah, I was able to put it in, in a certain type of context, a certain type of light, connected to their real life events, and, and I was the I was the curator. You know? That's that's what I feel like curating is. You know, yeah. it's making this huge history and this huge edifice of culture. It's making it something that people can appreciate just in themselves and connect with. It's making it intelligible and accessible. You know, that's why I work at a museum where we don't charge admission. You know, so that anyone can come and engage with this history and be a part of it, because everyone's voice is important, and every it it all adds to that narrative. Yeah. You know, very cool, man. So, are y'all looking at ways to uh, actually? You talk about everyone's voice is important. I would say traditionally, I would challenge that a little bit. Say traditionally, while the curation is a beautiful process, it's really like traditionally I'm being spoken to by a museum. It, it's their efforts to uh, make people's uh, contribute voice while they experience a museum? That's changing a lot. The internet, first of all, helps us with that oh, a lot. What is this? <laughs> Sorry. 
the internet, you know, like social media and other forms of communication through the internet, they really help us um, achieve that kind of stuff because, you know, we can say something from the in the voice of the museum, and anyone can anyone who follows us or who connects with us through the internet can respond to us and voice their opinion directly. Yeah. You know, on an equal playing field. That's great because we can take that into account. But also, we do a lot of physical like events because we want to include all demographics, not just people who use the internet, you know, on a regular basis to communicate, which is not that huge a part of the American population. We want to include everyone, so we do a lot of physical events. Like on Thursday, we had a town hall style meeting where the whole curatorial staff of the museum just met with people from the community. Anybody who felt like they had something to say about the arts or some I desire for the direction. Yeah, we did. We, um, I would have liked more people to be there, obviously. You know, I always want more people to be at the museum. But um, the people that were there were super engaged, and they had some really good input um, that we're going to definitely include in our strategic plan uh, for the next three to five years. Very you know. cool, man. Very cool. So, I mean, you know, you got, do you commute to Spartanburg? Yes. From Rock Hill? Yeah, it kind of sucks, uh, but <laughs> uh, it really sucks. Uh, but was it two hours? Hour and a half? It's like an hour, hour and a half. Okay. I was gonna move, but I couldn't talk Caroline into it, and you know, you so know how it is. Why not, Caroline? What do you love about this place? Well, I have a job that is probably not my dream job, but it is a good job. I enjoy. I work for Nordstrom at the jewelry and watches counter, and Nordstrom's a really, really awesome company. It's hard to leave that for Spartanburg. Uh, we're just young. We're still figuring everything out. So to up dump our whole lives just to go to Spartanburg is a little quick for me. Well, I don't mean I'll to start a domestic it. here. I'm just uh, asking. <laughs> There's no specific reason other than I don't want to leave my mom, really, <laughs> in my job. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I think that's great. I, family, you know, ties are, family ties are like more important for millennials, I think, or they're becoming more important than they were for the past generations. Past no, two I, generations. I think that's an interesting statement. I, I think um, Gen Xers definitely followed the money. I mean, you know, whatever job pays more, I'm moving there. That was the kind of work hard, play hard, make a hundred plus grand, rock climb on the weekend, drive a convertible sports car. You know, that's the whole millennium. I have a big house. So do you rock climb on the weekend? Dude, I don't rock climb at all. <laughs> but, um, you drive a big house? <laughs> you have a convertible. Have a convertible either, but I, if I had, if I could, I would. Um, See, this is this is why we need a bullet train to go from Spartanburg to Rock Hill. That would make our like lives easier. From Spartanburg. I just want to let me turn your joke into probably the most poignant statement that needs to be made on this podcast. We don't need a bullet train. We need a network of bullet trains that connect every urban center over 65,000 people in the southeast, period. We need localized, we need streetcars. <laughs> slow clap, slow clap, I like it. We need streetcars in the downtowns that connect to locals that go out to hospitals and residential areas and different kind of target areas and stuff. And then we need regionals that are bullet trains to connect. I'm telling you, connectivity yeah. is everything. Well, it's about access, right? Access we want everything. everyone to have access. We want everyone to have access that right now only exists in urban centers. Yeah. And then we can preserve the family 
needs we want yeah. and to hang out with our family. When it comes to public transportation, it's not the amount of people that ride public transportation. And I'm stealing this from somebody. God love whoever I steal it from. Um, T.S. Eliot said, uh, good poets borrow, great poets steal. And I'm stealing that from T.S. Eliot. And I'm, stealing, and I'm stealing this other quote from somebody I don't even know who it is. But he, he said, this person said, it's not the amount of people that ride public transportation, it's the socioeconomics of the people who ride public transportation. And the reason why that's important is because if you have upper socioeconomics riding public transportation, you can bet your butt that they will be well-maintained, invested in, on time, and everybody below them in the socioeconomic scale will get the benefit, every one of those benefits of the well-run public transportation system that provides access to everybody. It's, it's just the nature of a, a capitalist marketplace that the people with money have to participate or it's just a drag on everything and you're fighting the constant battle of the noble person who's fighting for a budget line, a line item in the budget, to try to improve the train because it's stinky and it smells like vomit. And it would not smell like vomit if higher socioeconomic people were riding a train. I'm telling you, and it is so would stop vomiting. No, we need to have the right to vomit. I am pro-vomit. I, I, I could just, a train is a lot, a, a public train is a lot like a museum. It's a public space where people from all walks of life can encounter each other and for me it's a little bit different from what Jason was saying for me like that's what's really important it's having a space where people from all walks of life can encounter each other and engage each other in dialogue and experience something I mean that's why I think a nonprofit museum is you know it's such a unicorn in our culture is because you know people from the highest part of culture and the lowest part of culture and from the middle as well can all you know, they can all teach each other something, and the only place they're going to encounter each other is in a public space. Dude, I totally agree, and we are not saying opposite things. What I'm saying is that, like, you can have a big political win, get a bunch of money, and create a, a space or a mode of transportation that serves uh, folks who can't afford to pay for it, and it can be paid for by the public sector, and it will be clean for a little while, and it will be compelling for a little while, and it will be funded for a little while. But when it comes down to it, if you don't get the upper socioeconomic to participate in it, you ultimately have a political battle of trying to fight to the, to, I mean like grind your teeth to try to get a line item to fund something. So, I mean, if you, I experience that every day. Yeah. I work at a nonprofit museum that's funded by grants and donations, like, and I'm doing community development, so I'm handling a lot of that stuff. It's a huge struggle. Yeah. And so the answer is, that you have, to, you have to bring in, like, you can't just say, this is a place where anybody could come and have access. You actually have to compel them to come in. And that is where I think there's a lot of misguided activity where it's like, okay, well, people go see the Avengers movie, so let's make the museum be an Avengers movie, and therefore they'll come here too. That's a great, uh, that's a great point, and there's a lot that I would like to say about it, but, you know, I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to put my foot in my mouth about some really big museums whose collections and whose curatorial staff I really respect, but whose programming I might have some problems with. And, and they're fighting battles. I can imagine their boardroom meetings right now. I mean, think about how frustrated the, the mat, the you of that place goes home every night having to fight the political battles that they have to fight because just because the price tag's bigger. Man, bigger the price tag, bigger the political battle. It's just the nature of the world. Yeah.
But we're, we're really lucky to have an executive director. So the curator is in charge of like the art part of the museum, right? And um, I actually handle collections, and we have an exhibits coordinator that works on our exhibits, right? And we have an executive director who's in charge of all the museum operations and everything that happens in the museum. Then a board of directors that advises, and a board president who is then in charge of the whole system as well. So it's quite a complicated and draconian system, but I just wanted to let you know that the executive director that we have at the museum is like so prescient and so informed and passionate on these. She smells good. <laughs> prescient means like seeing what's going to happen in the future and taking the right steps to head in that direction and, and make it be the best that it can be. You know, we're really lucky to have an awesome executive director who's really passionate about access, but also appreciates that, you know, everyone, you know, the wealthy, the poor, and the middle class, they all have to have a place in the museum. She appreciates that. So, and she's really good at um, doing, you know, working with our operational budget and, and making us run in the black, which is really difficult for a lot of small museums. It is difficult, man. Difficult for nonprofits, difficult museums. And I think that, you know, this, uh, there's been a fiscal conservative revolution in this country, and we've always been a fiscal conservative country, but like, I talk a lot about, um, how the new economy is very similar to uh, Florence of the Renaissance and how because Florence of the Renaissance was an explosion of um, the middle class, creative class. It was, you know, uh, creative services, design, uh, experimentation, innovation, entrepreneurship. It, it exploded. I'm coming out of the Middle Ages. I mean, you know, it was just feudal and peasant. You were, you know, lord or, or nothing. And so this explosion of the kind of creative middle class was, was what the Renaissance was all about. Well, in the meantime, the poster child of the Renaissance happens to be the place where the people who were making all the money from their banking and their um, you know, uh, textiles industry or whatever decided to invest huge amounts of that money in the arts. And there's a very, very specific reason why they did it, I think. It was because if you make an amazing place, amazing people will come there. And amazing people drive the economy and in the latter half of the industrial revolution that wasn't the case it was the big corporations drive the economy because they have it locked down but they're like the lords of the dark ages you know the we are now right now it, we are florence of the renaissance and there's an explosion that's happening and every community needs to figure out how do i bring talent amazing people that can innovate and drive economy through innovation exper experimentation all this to my community, and the way you do it is by being Florence. You, 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 you invest in Michelangelo and Da Vinci. You create an amazing place. It's your museums, your arts, your culture, your activities that bring people like you guys to this place, and you guys drive the economy by innovating. Think on that. Swallow that. Chew up. Chew up that. So I would like to transition at this point and say. Well, okay, art, art, as, art as an object uh, over the last uh, 45 years has uh, returned, according to Bloin, it has, it has returned between 6.5 to 10% on investment. Just art, just artifacts, just paintings or sculptures that's or whatever. The, the increasing value of an increasing object. Increasing value of objects. Yeah. You know, so if, if that's our baseline, think about how much of a return on investment we're getting for investing in the arts. You know, the arts as an element of 
community. And I would even say that those, uh, the, val the increasing value of those objects is almost an arbitrary mechanism to fund the more important thing. And the more important thing is creative people innovate and solve problems. It is the same people that go to a show, punk show at the courthouse or go to enjoy museums or make cool posters that will, I will hire at Revenflow to solve complicated problems uh, for money. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? But creative thinking is important. It's everything now, man. It's everything. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to develop it by taking a standardized test. How are you going to, how are you going to develop it? How are you going to enter into a space that challenges you in a way that helps you develop really honest, you know, creative thinking that exists in itself, you know, in your mind, you know, how are you going to develop those skills and those intangible skills that are difficult to measure, but that do so much for our economy and our culture, you know, and why did the United States become, you know, why does it occupy the place it does in global culture? I'll tell you, man, the United States has been a dominant economy for a long time, and we have, ever since that whole time, we have looked to the East and said, well, they score better on, uh, you know, these tests than us, boy, we're in trouble yet we dominate the economy. And I heard this guy who was from uh, the East, he's an Asian dude, uh, ethnically, he was describing this and he was making it a joke, but it was funny. He said, okay, you go to Japan, let's say, and you ask a kindergartner, what's one plus one? And they say three, and you smack them on the hand, you say, try again, and don't fail. Um, and they get very afraid, and they try again, and hopefully they say two. And then they get it right, and they score better than the United States. You ask an a American teacher, ask the child, what's one plus one? And they say three, and the American teacher says, that's a very interesting answer. <laughs> and they say, let's talk about how you arrived at that answer. So while we think, oh, they're babying them, and like they should be, you know, whatever, we might think all that stuff, but here's what's really happening. They, they rewarded the courage it takes to say the answer they legitimized an answer at all, and then they challenged them to explore the process by which they came to that answer. Those are the ingredients that make an entrepreneurial economy. Those are the ingredients that have kept the United States as the dominant economy in the world. You know? So it's really, it's, it's really interesting how we ask our, it's the way in which we ask our questions, it's the way in which we um, treat people that builds this type of like confidence and, and, and it's at the core of our economy. You know, it's hard to measure. And it's things like museums, and it's things like jewelry design. It's, it's, it's people that create emotional experiences and connect us to our broader culture that are the real vehicles for the success of our economy. And yet we focus on numbers, 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 bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. Now we can't be naive and just pour all this public sector money into paying for all this stuff and then end up upside down. But hell, the uh, capitalist marketplace put us upside down anyway because everybody's buying a bigger house and a nicer car and, uh, and people are paying money to employees that they can't afford and, and everybody's, and, and we're almost basically almost insolvent as a nation, you know, because of all that. You know, but we can, we'd be insolvent on the other side, if we just poured it all into public sector stuff, nobody was paying for it, you know what I mean? Balance is everything. It's the, it's like the motion of the cosmos, you know? You gotta be in some type of balance. So, let me transition and say. Well, let me just say, Please. what's the, um, you know, the country in the world that had the number one 
educational system, you know, as far as test scores and achievement goes for a number of years. And they may still, or they may be two or three, uh, because it fluctuates periodically, but they've been consistently at the top for a number of decades, is Finland. And Josiah and I actually both were educated there in the course of our attainment. And, um, you know, Finland is also the one of the only countries, westernized or otherwise countries in the world, that has a union for artists. And that supports the arts in that kind of uh, material and concrete way. Well, I think that's a good, you know, an interesting mechanism. You know, the whole union idea is for another podcast because... Yeah, I'm not going to talk about unions. I'm just saying public support for the arts is really huge, and it gives people the opportunity to learn in ways that, um, you know, if, if you learn how to solve a problem, you know, in the, in the arts, you can take those skills that you developed and you can apply them to math, science, and technology, engineering equally well, you know? I think that... We are in a situation where to get public support for anything, you have to make the connection to the private benefit for that public support. And therefore, you're forced to have, you have to get the participation and support of the higher socioeconomic foes. Therefore, they witness it firsthand, and they're willing to write those checks, support that policy and government, whatever they need to do because they drive the power that would then support the access to the people of a lower socioeconomic so that we don't lose the great leveler, which are museums and libraries, and they are so important in this world, you know, and we, they are our mechanisms for the great leveling. So let me again transition and say, one day this podcast has to end, to quote uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, Matt, thank you for being here. Carolyn, thank you for being here. The, the jewelry artist and thief. No, I'm the thief. You're the artist. You're the thief. I'm the artist. Okay, great. The museum curator, ex-bartender. Indeed. <laughs> so on those words, we will end this podcast, and I guess we'll uh, see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Sayonara, gentle listeners.